0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with today's oral arguments before the Supreme Court on a case that could legalize discrimination in our commerce and culture at a time when powerful and influential people are engaged in racist speech, anti-Semitism, and religious bigotry. Joining us is Jill Hasday, Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota, who teaches anti-discrimination law, constitutional law, family law, and legal history. She is the author of Family Law Reimagined and Intimate Lies and the Law, and we will discuss the extent to which the far-right Supreme Court is sympathetic to having conservative Christian dogma imposed on American life in the name of freedom of speech. Then, following Trump's call to overturn the Constitution in order to install him in the White House, We'll examine whether, beyond charges of seditious conspiracy for which some of Trump's January the 6th stormtroopers have been convicted, Trump himself is committing treason by wanting to terminate the U.S. Constitution. Joining us is Jennifer Machia, a professor in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M University, where she teaches courses on political communication and presidential rhetoric. An historian of American political discourse, especially discourses about citizenship, democracy, and the presidency, she's the co-editor of The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, establishing the Obama presidency, and author of founding fictions, as well as demagogue for president, the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump. We'll discuss her article at Resolute Square, Treason to the Democratic Way of Life. Then finally, we'll look into the tragic anarchy in Haiti, which is ruled by violent street gangs who murder and kidnap poor people in collusion with corrupt police, politicians, and a repugnant oligarchical elite. Joining us is Brian Concannon, a human rights lawyer and the executive director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti. He lived in Haiti from 1995 to 2004, where he served as a human rights officer with the United Nations and was co-managing attorney with the Bureau des Avocats Internationaux, a public interest law firm. We will discuss how successive U.S. governments are largely culpable for this intolerable hellscape, having propped up corrupt regimes and crushed attempts at democratic governance. And joining us now is Jill Hasday, who's a professor of law at the University of Minnesota, who teaches anti-discrimination law, constitutional law, family law, and legal history. And she's the author of Family Law Reimagined and Intimate Lies and the Law. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jill Hasday.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So what did you make of the oral arguments today before the Supreme Court in this effort to essentially make a company that's open to the public in terms of public accommodation laws of Colorado, claiming that this person that uh, makes websites says that she can't make a website for gay couples because she doesn't approve of gay marriage, so therefore she wants a special exemption. This has been brought forth, uh, this suit, by the Alliance Defending Freedom. The same attorney that argued today before the Supreme Court brought the earlier wedding cake for gay couples case before the court, which ruled narrowly. So now the court has taken another bite of the apple. So is this a case of Supreme Court shopping?
1: Well, okay, so can, let me just back up a little bit just to introduce the case a little bit. Um, Lori Smith owns a design company, she says she generally serves all sorts of customers, including gay customers, but she wants to open up a new line of business making wedding websites and does not want to make wedding websites for same-sex couples. She says that she's afraid if she goes ahead with this plan to ban same-sex couples, she is going to be uh, subject to liability under this Colorado law that requires businesses that are generally open to the public not to discriminate based on sexual orientation. She has two basic objections to this law. First, a free speech objection, I'm being compelled to say something I don't believe. And second, a religious freedom objection, this violates my religious beliefs. The Supreme Court um, chose to only hear the case as a free speech case, not as a religious freedom case, which means actually more is at stake because any plaintiff who potentially has or claims a speech um, objection to a free exercise law could be in Lori Smith's shoes. You don't have to have a religious reason for refusing. As you said, there was a very similar case four years ago in 2008 called Masterpiece Cake Shop, which was about a Colorado baker, Jack Phillips, who didn't want to make wedding cakes for same-sex weddings. He called himself a cake artist, hence the name Masterpiece Cake Shop, and said he did not want to make these uh, cakes, the Supreme Court got rid of that case. It basically said, "Jack Phillips, you yourself win, but it's only because the Colorado Civil Rights Commissioners enforcing this anti-discrimination law allegedly displayed bias against him personally." But that they made it very clear that wasn't a general precedent. So this is the more general case came back, which is when if ever can someone opt out of a public accommodations law, a law that generally requires businesses to be open to any customers on a free speech uh, ground. Um, I think, yeah, most people think that the Supreme Court has become more sympathetic to the claim than it was even a few years ago. Uh, I would say the, cons- the consensus prediction after the oral argument is that the conservative majority will uphold um, the website dr- uh, designer's ability to refuse to make websites for um, same-sex couples. But it seems like they are looking for some sort of limiting principle. For instance, uh, Amy Comey Barrett at the oral argument told a lawyer for the designer that her strongest ground was that the designer's work is custom. She's making a custom website, suggesting the court isn't willing to go far enough as saying, like, you have a hardware store, you can say you're not selling to gay customers.
0: But surely, Jill Hasday, there's a difference between an artist, a novelist, freedom, under the first amendment to write whatever they feel like and see if they can sell their book or play or movie or whatever and a painter painting in his own his her her own studio and hoping to get a gallery to display it that's pretty clear but i, I if you go into a business a public business i mean Eric Olson, the Colorado Solicitor General, who argued for the Colorado law, noted that uh, Ms. Smith had never created a wedding website for anyone, gay or straight, and had sued preemptively against this Colorado law that was constitutional. So it seems to me that if you go into business, isn't, isn't there a kind of Chamber of Commerce motto, the customer's always right? And frankly, if you're in business making websites for weddings, and a gay couple want call up and want to hire you. Can't you just say I'm too busy? I can't take the work on. So it seems like they really want to make an issue out of that. That I guess that's what I'm getting at.
1: Well, okay. So I think there's a few things there. One, uh, you're what you began by saying is exactly what Colorado and its supporters, including the U.S. government, say, which is this is regulating commercial, ordinary commercial conduct. Any um. Imp- infringement on speech is very incidental. This is just like any anti-discrimination law that says you can't refuse to sell shoes to African-American people. That's just part of business. And we've made a commitment as society to basic anti-discrimination principles. Colorado did say also that even if the law is requiring her to make websites for everyone, nothing's stopping her from also saying on her website, I don't support same sex marriage. She's not being forced to say anything. All she's being forced to do, they say, is offer the same services to every person, which is just general principle of public accommodation law. Um, uh, Your second point is, could she get out of? Of course. There's so many ways of getting out of serving a customer. You can just say you're busy or you're booked on that day, et cetera, et cetera. Clearly, there are um, many people are interested in making this point, I'll also say just historically, when public accommodation statutes were first passed in the 60s, mainly focused on the example of racial discrimination, people attempted to make religious arguments. Um, I shouldn't have to serve an, an interracial couple because that's against my understanding of God's law. And the court rejected all those claims. So this is a reprise of that attempt, and many people are interested if they can, in convincing the court to abide by that principle, that people can opt out of um, public accommodations laws when they don't support the values underlying them.
0: Well, this is a court, of course, that's largely been stacked by Leonard Leo, a very conservative Catholic, and most of them are very conservative Catholics, and they don't even represent the diversity within the Catholic Church, let alone the diversity within religion in this country. And it feels to me like this is another, again, a bite of the apple following Hobby Lobby, where the owner of a business who f- felt that his Christian beliefs were compromised if he provided contraception in the health care that his employees had. And to me, that decision imposes this guy's religious beliefs on his employers. It's not as if somebody's being discriminated against. It feels like... Religious beliefs are being imposed on people unwillingly. That's the essence that, that I find objectionable, uh, let alone the idea that you can unravel all of these laws in the country against discrimination in business.
1: Right. I mean, um, one per- sometimes one person's freedom is another person's limitation. So mm-hmm. uh, Lori Smith understands this as about her free speech rights and not being coerced. But another way of thinking about this is this is about the right of gay people or any American to just walk freely through the, through the nation, right? To go into stores, to buy goods, not to be discriminated against on an illegitimate basis. So it's not really, it's not, she's framing it as freedom versus coercion, but there's freedom claims on both sides, of course
0: well it feels like the infliction of religious dogma that's the way i see the hobby lobby case in terms of the the employers who can no longer get contraceptive coverage because of their bosses beliefs and this seems to be another way to put this in the law and doesn't it have massive ramifications if it if indeed they succeed in oh. this Case?
1: I mean, one of the um, features of oral arguments was thinking about the hypothetical. So, Justice uh, Katanji Brown Jackson says, What if a Santa in a mall says, Actually, I don't support the idea, I think it's against my free speech ideas for like African American kids to be able to freely go in the mall. I'm only making pictures available on my lap to white children. Would that be okay? And the conservatives really wanted to resist the comparison between objections to same-sex marriage and objections to interracial marriage or objections to generally like anti-discrimination principles for sexual minorities and to objections to white supremacy but all i want to say is that at the time in the sixties many people were coming forward saying i have legitimate objections to racial um, integration and the court said no you can have those in your mind, but you can't act on those in the public square. Um, and that's part of what's being fought here is how is that going to work out? One thing I also thought was interesting that the lawyer for the website div- designer said is she pointed out that, you know, Burgerfell, which is the Supreme Court case where they required every um, state to recognize same-sex marriage, Kennedy's majority opinion did go out of its way to stress the sincerity and decency of opponents of same-sex marriage, and one reading of that is he's just trying to bring the nation together and to you know comfort opponents of the decision. But I think there is a way in which that theme in you know, Obergefell really um, encouraged this kind of litigation, because it was saying that you can have legitimate objections to same-sex marriage. That's not just discrimination in the way that I think now there's a fairly wide consensus that if you have objections to interracial marriage, that's just racism, right? There's nothing legitimate there. Um, So that's part of what's being fought out. I I think that's another way of thinking about this case. That's part of what's being fought out now is can you be a legitimate objector to same-sex marriage and marriage equality in the public sphere, yes or no? And Lori Smith wants to say, yes, I can legitimately object.
0: Well, I must say that this case being heard, and it seems from from the press reports that I've read, uh, Jill Husday, that it looked as if the conservative majority were quite sympathetic to this woman in Colorado who feels that somehow or other she can't turn away people who might want her to do a wedding website for a gay couple. I mean codifying uh, gay marriage in law, which is what the Senate's just done, and it's going to the House, seems more urgent than ever, right? In other words, are we going to have the situation where the Congress, and obviously it's going to be controlled by the House, at least by Republicans, so it makes it less likely, but in general, does this mean in the years and decades ahead that the Congress is going to have to f- sort of fight what the Supreme Court's doing?
1: Well, if it wants to, right? right. <laughs> I mean
0: Well, in yeah, the case so, of gay marriage, they are doing it, right? Right, Senate- right.
1: I mean, I think the court's decision in Dobbs, which was the case striking down uh, Roe and holding there's no uh, limits on legislative power to prohibit abortion, that unsettled a lot of Supreme Court 14th Amendment decisions, because the court's basic theory in Dobbs is in deciding what liberty the 14th Amendment protects. We look at... 1868, the moment the 14th Amendment was ratified, and we ask would the men behind the 14th Amendment have thought they were placing limits on this kind of regulation? And that's one reason why the court's decision in Obergefell, that's the case that legalized same-sex marriage, is seen as, if not in jeopardy, certainly in play, because the men behind the 14th Amendment in 1868 certainly didn't think they were saying anything about same-sex marriage. Um, So one of, I think, one of the other moving parts behind this uh, case is the court's own commitment to that anti discrimination principle that is sort of paralleled in the Colorado public accommodations law is itself in flux and not clear. Um, so, what um, someone might see as a conflict between two important values, free speech and anti discrimination, it's not 100% clear to me that everyone on the court sees it as a conflict because That sees that that's an important principle that the court should be interested in protecting, namely um, uh, discrimination, namely being anti discrimination uh, based on sexual orientation.
0: Well, how much, though, can you compare this particular Supreme Court to earlier Supreme Courts going back to the 14th Amendment, which, after all, after that, you had uh, Jim Crow and the whole idea of freeing African Americans (laughs) got sidetracked? or stifled, or stopped, and yet the 14th Amendment in the Santa Cara case was applied to corporations and becoming persons in law. So rather than make the purpose and spirit of the 14th Amendment be about freeing human beings, it became about freeing uh, corporations.
1: Well, I think many people have thought classically of the Supreme Court as a more progressive institution. but Historically, the Supreme Court has generally been conservative and even regressive, with the exception of a small window of time in the 60s and early 70s. Um, even today, I think it's, there's a way in which you could see this case as about, as you said, shopping the Supreme Court. The court has moved more to the right. But every, there, there are many elements in this case that were there beforehand. So one of the precedents that both sides are talking about in this case is this 1995 case called Hurley versus Irish-American gay, lesbian, and bisexual group of Boston. That was a case where the private group running, organizing the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Boston refused to let an Irish-American gay group uh, parade with them. And they said they didn't want to be conveying the message that they support gay rights. And the Supreme Court allowed that uh, exclusion. Lori Smith says, my case is just like that. I'm being forced to express uh, a view I don't like. Um, Colorado and uh, the United States aren't trying to get rid of that 1995 precedent about the St. Patrick's Day parade, knowing I think that's impossible at this point. But they're just saying that's different. That was really a private group being forced to express herself. All she has to do is set up a wedding website, which as Elena Kagan said in the um, oral argument, is basically it's a few graphics, it's some pictures of the couple, and it's like links to their registry. You know, the idea that this is deep speech is, is um, overblown.
0: Well, Jill Hasday, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Jill Hasday, who's a professor of law at the University of Minnesota, who teaches anti-discrimination law, constitutional law, family law, and legal history. And she's the author of Family Law Reimagined and Intimate Lies and the Law. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into Trump's call to terminate the U.S. Constitution and the threat of treason to our democratic way of life.
2: (music) I will beg God to send you up to hell. There's a great and a bloody fight around this whole world tonight. In the battle, the bombs and shrapnel rain. Hitler told the world around he would tear our union down. But our union's gonna break them slavery chains. And our union's gonna break them slavery chains. I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jennifer Machia, who's a professor in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M University, where she teaches courses on political communication and presidential rhetoric an historian of American political discourse, especially discourses about citizenship, democracy, and the presidency. She's the co-editor of The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and the author of Founding Fictions, as well as Demagogue for President, the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump. And she has an article at Resolute Square, Treason to the Democratic Way of Life. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jennifer Machia. Thank you.
3: I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And in terms of the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump, uh, his latest tweet, or not a tweet because he has his own social media platform, Truth Social, which is not doing well, but he's basically calling on uh, overturning the Constitution in response to a ridiculous tweet from Elon Musk about this non-existent scandal uh, involving Hunter Biden. So in terms of this rhetorical genius, which is absolutely true, I mean, the guy became president of the United States and was given $5 billion worth of free media by the mainstream media, do you see uh, him essentially going off the rails here? And do you think he can uh, last through to the Republican primaries in February of 2024?
3: Well, if he stays out of jail, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> we can only hope. Um, yeah, you know, I think Donald Trump is the first pretender to the presidency that we've ever had in the United States. He has acted um, since he lost the election in 2020 as though he were, in fact, the rightful ruler of the nation, um, only in exile, uh, you know, and that someday he would come back and regain the throne um, that he believes is rightfully his. And so, any piece of information that he can use, um, whether it's credible or not, you know, to his advantage, to help prove his case that he is, in fact, the rightful ruler of the United States, um, he's going to use, he's going to try to take advantage of that. And so that's what I see in those tweets. Um, you know, it's it's typical hyperbole and bluster from him. But, um, but it's also, you know, dangerous and portentous. I mean, we certainly shouldn't elect someone who's willing to eliminate or end the Constitution. (laughs) Is that
0: what he said? I think that's what he said. We did, indeed. And and, and the more appalling thing is that the Republicans are are silent. It's just shocking. But the fact of the matter is, Jennifer Machia, that this is all in Donald Trump's mind. He lost the presidency. He's obviously somebody that's psychologically incapable of accepting that he lost. And apparently his father, who was kind of a Nazi said you've got to be a killer son you can't be a loser so we are in fact the entire nation is being divided by a psychologically wounded person who should be institutionalized let alone become president of the united states again
3: yeah i think i think that that probably that's true i'm not qualified of course to judge but um it does seem to me like even republicans are tired of Donald Trump and his antics and you know, they don't really see him as a pretender to the presidency. You know, of course his his most diehard fervent supporters, um, you know, don't want to acknowledge that he lost, but I think the rest of the party is ready to move on.
0: But why aren't they saying anything about him basically wanting to overturn the constitution and forget about the last election, and stall me and uh you know, accept dictatorship. I mean, it sounds like his dinner with Kanye West and uh, Nick Fuentes, the young Nazi must have really made a big impression on him. Yeah,
3: I think that's probably true. You know, it might be that they're just trying to ignore the guy and hoping he's going to go away. (laughs) Um, He doesn't have any political power right now, right? And one of the things that, you know, we sort of learned after the midterm election is that his sycophants, his picks for political office were not well liked by the average Republican electorate. Um, You know, they didn't think that those were credible candidates. And so perhaps the Republican leadership is sort of wisely just trying to tiptoe away from the guy and um, and let him shout at the wind on his platform.
0: So just to touch on your article though, Jennifer, treason to the democratic way of life, and, and I hate talking about Trump and I wish he would go away <laughs> but fascism is in our political DNA it would seem, yeah, And you point out nine months after 20,000 people attended a Nazi rally at Madison Square Garden in 1939 John Dewey at 80, the age of 80 years old made a an impassioned plea for uh, democracy versus autocracy and now you've got a kind of reemergence of I mean you've actually got two challenges in America. You've got plutocracy versus democracy and autocracy versus democracy. And unfortunately in terms of plutocracy, the Silicon Valley plutocrats control our information space, and they're proving, particularly Elon Musk, to be quite dangerous. But in terms of the treason angle, it would seem to me, for example, that you could or you should charge former President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who was paid over $2 billion by the Saudis, who are petrostate, dedicated against democracy and in, determined to destroy the planet through endless use of fossil fuels, as are the, the Russians as well, another petro-state, and the, and the Emirates. They pose two dual threats— the end of the planet, uh, and uh, the end of democracy. So can you make that case? I know you didn't make it in the article, but it's out there. The threat to democracy is so clear.
3: Yeah, the the threats to democracy come from all sides. Um, You know, the plutocrats that you talk about, I think they're just another form of autocrat, right? Um, And there are lots of different um, ways that we can see People using autocratic discourse, trying to increase the power of their own group or their own religion or their own race or, you know, their own wealth demographic against uh, the common good. Right. Against the whole. And it's a thing that we don't really think about is in a day to day basis. And and I think we have done so more since Trump came on the political scene. But democracy in America is fragile, and it it always has been fragile. We don't think of it that way. Um, And so we don't think about what do we need to be doing every day to promote and protect democracy? How do we do democracy? Um, And that's really the thing that John Dewey was writing about in that speech is you have this tension between democracy and autocracy and anything that prevents people from thinking in democratic ways, from associating in democratic ways, and communicating in democratic ways. Those are all things that help autocracy versus defending democracy. Um, And, you know, I think it's really time that we start doing those same things that he was urging those folks to do in 1939.
0: And, of course, he was, as you point out, this was in response to the Nazis having a lot of influence here in the United States, and not to mention Mm -hmm. starting World War II. And Rachel Maddow has a podcast series out about how even in 1944 there was a powerful U.S. senator and a bunch of congresspeople that were working in concert with a Nazi propagandist, and the United States was at war with Nazi Germany. So if you look at the historical thread, you can't dismiss, i describe it as kind of, nazism in our political dna but you know a lot of the people that stormed the capital were for all intents and purposes nazi thugs
3: that's right and i mean anti-semitism racism of course have always been part not just of the united states but the western tradition um, and you know they're always sort of there in the background and they're 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 ready to be activated, you know, and so people use anti-Semitism and racism as a political strategy, as a, a way to get power. Um, and and it's never <laughs> it's never a good thing. It always ends poorly. Um, and so it's really something that we should be very cautious of. And, um, you know, it used to be things like that that, that were sort of banished from public discussion. Um and and that's one thing that Donald Trump really has done in the last seven years is he's provided a forum for these folks to um, access the public and to get their their ideas out there.
0: Well, treason is, is a hard, even though it's in the U.S. Constitution, giving aid and comfort to the enemy, which is what I'm arguing that Jared Kushner does when he sides with the Saudis who are who are raising the price of oil along with the Russians to finance their war against Ukraine, against the American consumer who goes to the pump and pays a premium that helps Putin and helps Mohammed bin Salman. So I'm arguing that that's aid and comforting the enemy in a a way that you could never prove, but seditious conspiracy has already been proved against the oath keepers and more of them are on trial along with the Proud Boys. So... Do you think that the American public are getting an education there? And and uh, since the Proud Boys and and the Oath Keepers were clearly being guided by their führer, none other than Donald Trump, is it possible that seditious conspiracy could also be applied to Trump?
3: Yeah, I was really happy to see um, the Oath Keepers verdict come down the way it did. Um, I thought that that was that was good to establish that there was indeed this. Is- seditious conspiracy. Um, but, you know, when I talked about it with my students, they didn't hear anything about it. They didn't know anything at all. Um, and they didn't know what seditious conspiracy was. And they didn't know what the January 6th committee had already proven. You know, they, they just didn't know any of that information. And so, of course, I walked them through it all and they just looked horrified. Um, but, you know, most Americans are avoiding the news. They're not interested in hearing any of this stuff. And so, you know, I think it's really good that we have this on the record and and it can be used, you know, to point to and say, this is what happened. Um, but I just don't know that it's going to really change public opinion too much.
0: So what do you think will wake people up? I mean, you mentioned earlier that uh, the midterms, clearly enough Americans stood up for democracy against what? it's essentially a plan for one-party rule where the republicans were running election deniers who would capture the electoral machinery and put themselves in power forever that didn't happen so we we can be thankful for that but the battle is not won and the danger is still out there that's right
3: it's absolutely right um, you know, I, am not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure what's going to happen next. Um, and, and I don't think anyone else is either. Um, and what I do think is that, you know, folks like you and me and, and the folks who listen to your program, you know, we're the ones that, that understand what's going on here and, and we have to keep talking about it. Um, the more we talk about it, I think the more we go out into the world as defenders of democracy and we say, you know, this is what's going on. This is what's true. Um, the more that we, in fact, try to include Republicans, like real average people, not political leaders, um, you know, bring them back into sort of the democratic way of life, um, I think that's that's all for the good. That's the way we defend democracy,
0: really. But just as Trump and uh, Kanye West and this young Nazi Nick Fuentes and others start celebrating Hitler and, and spouting hateful anti-Semitism. Isn't it helpful? And you just described what happened with your own students. They didn't even know about these seditious conspiracy trials. Isn't it important to educate people about the historical threat of Nazism and its current incarnation? And it's not a majority in this country, clearly. It's a sick minority. But it has to be strenuously rejected, and yeah. that seems to be where we're lacking, and the fact that the Republicans can't even come out and condemn Trump for wanting to overturn the Constitution, which is the bedrock of American democracy.
3: Yes, absolutely. It, we need to we need to be as clear as possible that <laughs> that um, that it's not okay to spread anti-Semitism. That it's not okay to be racist. And and the plan of the racists, of course. It's to try to make it okay, to try to normalize those conversations um, and that way of thinking. And I mean, I know you know, and, and I'm sure your listeners do too, but normalization is the process by which you take an unthinkable, impossible idea, something that everyone would reject, and you repeat it often enough so that people get used to it. And as they get used to it, it begins to seem like common sense. And that's what we're fighting at this moment is, you know, you have Kanye West out there trying to normalize talking about Hitler as a good person. Um, you know, and so we need to keep highlighting why that's not the right way to think about Hitler um, and, and, and to discuss the process itself. Like, this is what the strategy is. This is what he's doing. Unclear why, but this is, you know, what's happening. And the more you can sort of pull back the curtain, the more you can weirdify what they're trying to normalize, uh, the better. uh, Because then everyone can see what's going on.
0: Well, Jennifer Machia, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: It's my pleasure.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Jennifer Machia, who's a professor in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M University, where she teaches courses on political communication and presidential rhetoric, an historian of American political discourse, especially discourses about citizenship, democracy, and the presidency. She's the co-editor of The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency. The author of Founding Fictions, as well as Demagogue for President, the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump, and she has an article at Resolute Square Treason to the Democratic Way of Life. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking to the tragic anarchy in Haiti, which is ruled by violent street gangs who murder and kidnap poor people in collusion with corrupt police, politicians, and a repugnant oligarchical elite.
2: We're gonna tear Hitler down. We're gonna tear Hitler
0: down. We're gonna tear Hitler down someday. We're gonna bring him to the ground. We're gonna bring him to the ground. We're gonna bring him to the ground, to the ground
2: someday. Is he low?
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Brian Kincannon, a human rights lawyer and executive director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, and lived in Haiti from 1995 to 2004, where he served as a human rights officer with the United Nations and co-managing attorney with the Bureau des Avocats Internationaux, a public interest law firm. Welcome to Background Briefing, Brian Kencannon.
4: Well, thank you, Ian, for having me back again and once again for covering Haiti.
0: Well, it is absolutely tragic what's happening in Haiti, and I, I read an article at the BBC that was just so sad. I mean, it's brutal what's happening there, that these street gangs have essentially taken over the country and they're meeting out the most horrible punishment on the people. Kidnapping seems to be the number one industry now, and they kidnap people, and if they don't pay up, they murder them, they burn them alive in their cars, and they gang-rape young girls and call the parents to shake them down for money and and have the parents listening in to the, their children being gang-raped. I mean, the brutality of this is beyond belief. So is this a new phenomenon, or why is it metastasized to the point where a country is being brutalized and terrorized by street gangs
4: that's a really good question ian i mean it certainly is sad that that haitians are subject to such brutality and really terrorism um, but if you if you focus back away from the you know from the individual horrors that are happening to haitians and look at the broader picture it's also outrageous uh, there are both long-term and short-term causes of the gangs, as you say, metastasizing in Haiti. Some of the long-term causes are just the government's inability to provide basic government services in poor neighborhoods and that's almost anywhere you have that problem governments not providing basic services giving jobs giving education things like that you're going to have some kind of a gang problem but what's happened is that haiti has had a historic gang problem for decades but that it's been over the last 11 years of rule by the phtk party that the gangs have really begun this metastasization process. Um, the, 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 BBC article that you mentioned, it, it quotes, uh, a, a Haitian academic named James Boyard, who says there's always been a gang problem, but it was only under PHTK that the relationships became institutionalized between the government and gang members. And in many ways, that what is happening today is actually the latest step in a carefully executed plan. The PHTK government from the beginning has slowly dismantled, or steadily dismantled Haiti's democracy. Uh, there hasn't been any parliament in almost three years because the government wouldn't have elections. The uh, Supreme Court ran out of people to, to hear cases a year ago. There haven't been elected officials in, in two and a half years in office. Um, journalists have been have been um, have been pushed into really self-censoring what they say. Uh, basic public works like education and healthcare are are happening at a very decreased way. And the reason that all that's happening, the reason why there's been such dismantling is that the PHTK party, their main effort has been to loot the system. And so you, they cancel public uh, services so that they can pocket the money. And then they dismantle accountability mechanisms so that there's no way to, to, for, for, for the government to be held to account, and the gangs are an integral part of that. Um, from the beginning, the PHTK party has cultivated relationships with gangs. They have ha, they've enlisted gangs to over to to attack areas that are that have been organizing against corruption and against government abuse. Um, one of the first of the major gang attacks was the 2018 La Saline uh massacre in which a police officer led gang attacks against the la saline neighborhood ex- explicitly because la saline was an area of of organizing especially for the lava last party that was organizing demonstrations against the government other attacks, especially in the area of Cite Soleil, which was mentioned in, in the BBC article, they were attacked because those areas have a lot of voters, and the and the anti the, the pro government gangs have been taking over those areas because they would not otherwise vote for the government. But now people in those areas are not going to have any choice. So you're right that that gangs have taken over the country, but it it may be more accurate to say that gangs have been allowed to take over the country. By the government, this is not a bug. This is a feature of the system of dismantling democracy.
0: And yet, the United States government supports the government of Ariel Henry,
4: right? Yes. What the you know what what the PHTTK get, gets out of this is they get to loot the treasury. What the United States and the rest of the international community gets is that that there is a um, that that progressive political forces are kept out of winning fair, uh, kept kept away from an opportunity to win fair elections. Um, and we've talked about this in the past. Um, back in between 1995 and 2004, you had um, progressive governments under Presidents Preval and Presidents Aristide who were running the country. The United States undermined it and actually overthrew President Aristide in 2004. And since then, it's been very... Uh, systematic U.S. policy to prevent the Lavalas party or any other progressive party from coming back to power through fair elections. And so they've they've been willing to tolerate, um, you know, as, as you can see today, an unimaginable amount of harm coming to average Haitians as long as the government is keeping out uh, Lavalas and other progressive forces. The current prime minister, Ariel Henry, he was not chosen through any Haitian uh, process. He was chosen as prime minister when the core group, which is a group of countries that's dominated by the United States, they issued a press release saying they recognized him as the president, uh, as the prime minister, which forced out the, other, the, other, the previous prime minister. I mean, we really are holding the puppet strings on Haiti, and these are very brutal and corrupt puppets we're operating.
0: Well, how in God's name, though, Brian, could a progressive democratic government do anything remotely as harmful as what's happening now, where ordinary citizens are being terrorised and shaken down and murdered and raped, and you can't travel around the place? The, The gangs control all the key territory, the ports, they control the area around the government and around the courts, so they've got the place locked down, and in the BBC article there's a, a lawyer a picture of this lawyer with his wife and these two gorgeous daughters that were going to be lawyers and professors. The wife and the kids were driving to school or the university, they get pulled over by the gangs and shot and burned alive in their car. I mean, how much worse could it be? I just don't understand the values of the core group and particularly of the United States government. It's had this long history of being paranoid about Aristide and other progressives, and allowed this country to sink into this morass of violence and horror.
4: I think it depends on what you are, are afraid of. Certainly, Haitians are afraid of being burnt alive in their car. They're afraid of not getting having enough to eat. They're afraid of their kids not getting education, or their their family and friends not getting health care. And that is why they keep insisting when they're given the chance. Of electing progressive leaders, what the United States is worried about is that if you do have a progressive leader in Haiti, it's likely that they're going to challenge the international order. They're going to challenge a world where countries like the U.S. Uh, feel like they can name a prime minister in Haiti. They're 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 afraid that they can that the Haitian government will will file a claim for the restitution of the slave. Uh, of the independence debt that was extorted from Haiti, where Haitians had to pay for the liberation of their own bodies, they had to pay France for that. Um, And there's lots of things that that the United States is worried about having a country like Haiti which will challenge this international order. And this is not going to have a big effect on, on your average American. We're going to be able to live our life. But the, the foreign policy community is just so concerned about having, having a government that's going to challenge the, the world order that it's willing to, to uh, tolerate the, the horrible conditions that Haitians are living under right now.
0: But one of the things that the U.S. government is concerned about is refugees from countries in the Caribbean and in Central America that are run by despots and criminals and also left-wing you know, thugs like Maduro and uh, Ortega in Nicaragua. And immigrants are flooding in from... Venezuela and from Nicaragua because of the brutality of the leadership and then because of the criminality of, in Guatemala. I mean, in Honduras, there's a new government that's trying to clean things up, but still El Salvador is also run by an autocrat. So what about that aspect? If the U.S. is concerned about unlimited immigration or the Republicans are making a huge political issue about our southern border... You'd think that the U.S. government would want to make life livable for Haitians so that they didn't have to flee in desperation.
4: Haitians have been making that argument, that if the – they've been making it to every government, especially over the last 10 years, saying if you don't want Haitians fleeing repression to show up either on the high seas or in Miami or at the the border – then you have to stop supporting the conditions that are driving people to flee. And it's important to note that the people that have been arriving at the border over the last couple of years, some of them have been forced out of Haiti recently, but many of them have been forced out over the last decade it's really been throughout the whole phtk rule that haitians have been forced out of the country they're only more recently showing up on our border because many of them initially went to south america but it took uh uh, took some time for them to filter up because they they found there was they were no not able to live safely in south america so they keep heading heading north and most haitians I mean, I lived in Haiti for nine years. Haiti, when you don't have this kind of gang horror, Haiti can be a wonderful place. It's a wonderful society. It's got lots of natural beauty, amazing culture. And so most Haitians would prefer to stay in Haiti if they were allowed to live lives of reasonable safety, stability, and prosperity. They're asking us to give them that chance, but we so far have not been willing to do that. And we pay the price of having to deal with refugee flows.
0: So in terms of the violence and controlling the gangs, who, you know, as much as you can control these brutal thugs, the long the short it is, you made clear, Brian Kincannon, that the politicians, the ruling party, use these gangs to terrorize uh, opposition neighborhoods, so they maintain power, and a lot of the police are either because they don't get paid much. At any rate, they're either corrupt or some of them are directly involved in some of these gangs. As you m- mentioned, the atrocities in uh, La Saline were, con- were led by a you know, former policeman run- who was running a gang. But there's another element, isn't there? The morally bankrupt or morally corrupt elite that have always been essentially controlling Haiti and exploiting it. And they've been untouchable all along. And I guess the US has always sided with them for some reason or other. They're also employing the gangs. So what is their motive in having this horrific situation? How, how does that protect them to have a failed state that's unlivable and in anarchy?
4: Yeah, that's a good point because we can't talk about the gangs without talking about the about the the wealthy people who are often the along with the government are often the financers of the gangs and and most of the wealthy families. There's a few wealthy families that that basically run Haiti's economy and they all have their own relationships with 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 gangs. Um, the one positive step is that because of all the, the you know the pressure that Haitians have put on. Uh, The pressure that journalists like you covering this and, and solidarity activists in North America have put on this situation. Canada and the U.S. have reluctantly over the last few weeks started to sanction some members of the of the uh, of the PHTK party, and over the last week, some members of Haiti's um, economic elite for being involved in gang activity. You know, we're looking forward to seeing these sanctions being really serious, that they actually target things in ways that that do deter these, uh, you know, these economic elites from profiting from gangs, but it is somewhat promising that they are being pursued. But these people are also, I mean, this is, it's a good start what's happened over the last week, but over the past, the, the 27 years I've been working on Haiti, the U.S. government's primary relationships are with these economic elites. They're people who you know, are lighter skin. They speak English. They understand America. That's who the U.S. goes to. If you go to a you know a, an event at the at the U.S. Embassy, if there's a visiting congressional delegation, those people are there. That's who the U.S. gets a lot of its information from. They give they give those people USAID contracts. They they help keep. Um, wages low at their at their plants. Um, And so they're already a big part of U.S. foreign policy. So it's a step that that's that the U.S. is starting to sanction them. But the U.S. needs to go much further and say that the that the policy towards Haiti should be based not on the few families, but based on the majority of Haitians that want democracy, because the As much as the U.S. fears democracy in Haiti, the economic elites do much more because obviously, you know, their control, their being fabulously wealthy in a country where most people don't get enough to eat, is obviously unsustainable if you have a democratic government. A democratic government is going to uh, impose fair taxes, it's going to, you know, stop. Um, monopolistic practices. It's going to do things to democratize the economy, which is going to prevent the wealthy families from from maintaining the same level of, of hegemony over Haiti.
0: Well, but the United Nations, though, are now imposing sanctions, aren't they? They've imposed sanctions on Jimmy Chazier, a former police officer nicknamed Barbecue, because he burns his victims alive. So... The UN regime, along with Canada and the United States, are started to sanction. Would that is that biding? I mean, can they all work together? Because the question is, that's out there is who's going to intervene to stop the killing? Because obviously the police are helpless and corrupt, and many of the gangs are run by former policemen.
4: Yeah, that's a good question. So, in terms of, I mean, there there does appear to be some collaboration between the U.S., Canada, and the U.N. in terms of who they're sanctioning. Although some of it, some of that collaboration is is raising concerns in Haitians. For example, um, Canada sanctioned uh, former Ph.T.K. TK President Michel Martelly, but the U.S. wouldn't. N- as far as you know in terms of public public knowledge Martelly has a lot of assets in Florida so he would be you know that those could be painful there he's not known to have assets in, in Canada so the sanctions that he has against him in Canada are not really painful and, and he doesn't have sanctions in the United States so Haitians are suspicious about that I mean whether sanctions work really depends on how how forcefully they're applied. Uh, the Trump administration actually sanctioned Cherizier and two others. Uh, it's now uh, two years ago. There hasn't been any sign that that's made any difference. Um, and so all of these sanctions will only deter conduct. They'll only move Haiti towards democracy if they're actually enforced. And that means you know, enforced against the individuals, but also using using the u.s ability to get information to track down shell companies um you know this is a bigger topic but the u.s is is probably the biggest country where illicit assets are hidden through through shell companies we need to track down on that but in terms of your question of who should intervene haitians um, especially kind of politically organized haitians are rejecting any international intervention uh they point to the last one which not only did not do any good, it set the stage for the current gang crisis. Uh, and what Haitians are asking for is the US and Canada and the UN and everybody else who will listen to stop propping up the PHTK party and allow democracy to happen. That the latest sanctions are perhaps some sign that they that the US and Canada are in fact backing off their propping up of the Haitian government. They're not going to make a difference yet. The, the both the US and Canada have to move much further to, you know, to, to disassociate themselves and stop providing the support that keeps the government in power. I mean most Haitians people, although Haitians are, you know, are under amazing threats, they're showing up in the streets by the tens of thousands to fight for their democracy. They're willing to 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 put their lives on the line for democracy. And they think that what they that the pressure they can already exert on their government is enough for their government to be, at least to make meaningful compromises, if not resign. But they say it's only that the fact that the U.S. is propping the government up that prevents their organizing their protests uh, from from bearing the, the fruit of, of fair elections.
0: Well, Brian, can Canada, I thank you so much for joining us here today and filling us in on this tragic situation.
4: Well, thank you, Ian, for covering it.
0: This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.